where did this come from? I found it. Well, let's both play. You really don't want me to play? Captain Howdy said no. Who's Captain Howdy? You're gonna die up there. I need reassignment. You're the best we've got. I think I've lost my faith. Is there someone inside you? Sometimes. Who is it? I don't know. Is it Captain Howdy? Have you ever heard of exorcism? How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? I'm Damien Carroll. I'd like to help you. Where's Regan? In here with us. I believe we should begin. What an excellent day for an exorcism. It's motherfucking Halloween month. And we've got some good stuff planned. And I am so excited. You excited? Fuck yes. It's the it's, greatest the greatest time of year. It is. Uh, fuck cr- Christmas. Christmas can go suck a dick. Fuck Christmas. Fuck Thanksgiving. It's fucking Halloween. It is our time of year. It is our time to shine. Yes, it is. Orange and black. So I want to welcome you guys to the show. I'm Chris. That's my co-host, Jordan. And uh, today we're going to do things a little different. We are going to skip the, uh, the horror news segment and we're going to talk a little bit about our time at the SC Horror Convention. Uh, And then we're going to fill you in on a little bit of info on the Halloween episodes we got planned. All right, so first, we recently attended South Carolina's first ever horror convention in state's history. It was held in Columbia, South Carolina at the Convention Center, a two-day event, and it was very affordable and family-friendly. Uh, I think weekend passes. I think I paid twenty bucks for two days. It's pretty pretty cheap. I know uh, Monster Mania and a lot of the bigger ones. I think it's like thirty dollars a day. So big price difference. And on at this one, um, kids under seven were free to get in, and we had free parking. Yeah, I got I got two in for free. Yep. Yeah, she did. Uh, I don't I don't know if that's. I guess. I guess you probably have to pay for kids at the bigger ones, but I, I don't know. I've never taken oh, well, children. I, I would, I would hope not. Amity, she's—they charged me for a three-month-old. <laughs> It'd be pretty fucking aggravating. Just put her in but, your purse. But maybe Iris, I could see that. But yeah, so there was a lot of uh, great vendors. There was tons of really cool horror-inspired artwork. Uh, Tyler Maine from Rob Zombie's Halloween One and Two and The Devil's Rejects were there. Uh, Melissa Cohen from The Walking Dead and my personal favorite and the main reason I went was John fucking Russo he worked on The Night of the Living Dead and Return of the Living Dead and all the Living Deads Uh, he worked with uh, Romero on all that stuff he played zombies in those movies Uh, I think he's got his he's got some of his own zombie movies Um, I mean he's got he's got some crazy Crazies! I think he's still playing zombies, and he's like eighty-five. He is the godfather of <laughs> zombies. He is the godfather of zombies. I'd say, yeah, I I agree. But yeah, I got to speak with him for a while. Uh, super cool dude. Loves interacting with fans. He's very down to earth. 
And uh, I did get some stuff signed from him as well. So it is now on my shelf and I like to look at it. But you can find his shop at thejohnrusso.com. I also want to shout out spookytwins.com. They had an amazing booth, uh, a ton of really cool artwork and props that they make themselves. I personally picked up a very beautifully made Necronomicon for a pretty good price. It was a fantastic price. Yeah. I was, I was jealous. Yeah, they only had one, and I, I scooped it up. Yeah, I got a card, though, so I will be pre-ordering. Uh, I guess you'd call it pre-order. It's yeah. made, made as order. Yeah. I found out today that they're based out of North Carolina. Yeah, Cherry, Cherry something, North Carolina. I make good shit. Yeah. Uh, but I will um, I will put both of their links in the show notes for you guys. I highly recommend you at least check out their shops and see what they got. They probably got something that uh, you know will interest you. Uh, I also scored a perfect condition VHS copy of the Blair Witch Project that I am uh, very proud of, and it's now on my shelf as well. It's a, just a brag that I want to. I know, I know so many people hate that movie, <laughs> but I like it and I have a VHS copy of it. So fuck off. Agreed. No. Fuck off. That's a great movie. I mean, it's, you know, it's a movie that's meant to watch on VHS too. Like VHS doesn't downgrade it. I think it upgrades it. It's supposed to look like that. Yeah, I agree. That's, uh, we'll just have to dig out a VHS player here one day. Or yeah. go buy one for 25 cents. Yeah, we could find one somewhere. But yeah, it was a fantastic time. Everyone was uh, really awesome. We really can't wait till next year. Big thanks to SC Horror, all the volunteers, everyone who came out and made it what it was. Up next, we will talk about our episodes for the month of October. We're not going to tell you a lot about them, but we'll drop a little bit of info we think you need to know. So all the movies that we'll be doing will be Halloween themed. So it's uh, what's well, like five episodes, right? We got five, yep. five weeks, five episodes. So the next five episodes will be in some way, shape or form. Uh, either they take place on Halloween or the week of Halloween, or they have, they just have something to do with Halloween is involved somehow, some way, except the 13th, except for that one. And there's a special reason why we'll tell you that now. So the episode that would normally be coming out on October 15th. So like two episodes from now will be coming out a little early. Uh, we will be doing a Friday the 13th movie and releasing it on Friday the 13th. So definitely be on the lookout for that. So it'll come out on Friday instead of it coming out on Sunday night slash Monday morning. Friday the 13th in October doesn't get much better than that. No, it's perfect. So we decided, you know, you have to do a Friday the 13th movie and, you know, we'll drop the episode a little earlier, so... Uh, we think that that, you know, listen to a, a Friday the 13th episode on Friday the 13th. We'll probably be watching Friday the 13th that day. So, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a good time to have a new episode. 
But if you live a super busy, hectic lifestyle like some of us, or you just smoke a lot of weed and you need help remembering stuff, you can always find out what's going on with us by checking out one or all of our social media accounts. Uh, or you just like to have conversations with us about movies, you can find us on Facebook at the Grindhouse Syndicate Horror Podcast, Instagram at the Grindhouse Syndicate horror.pod and we do horror themed uh, stupid ass videos on tiktok at grind mjaj4w and uh, i will put all that stuff in the show notes too movie suggestions any yep. movie suggestions that you guys have drop them in, in one of the socials yeah for sure uh so everybody welcome to the exorcist 50th anniversary Halloween special episode. It's a big one. Yes, The Exorcist has just turned 50 years old, and we decided to do this movie, and it is a lot. <laughs> it it was a lot to put this episode together. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of stuff that's uh, that goes along with this movie. But so this episode is going to be it's going to be longer than the normal ones but i think that uh you guys will get a lot of info out of it and you guys will enjoy it so the uh the ratings for this is rotten tomatoes gave it an 86 percent boo too low imdb 8.1 out of 10 even worse and letterbox a four out of five stars uh, that, that's even worse uh, this movie is available to watch on HBO Max currently, or you can run it on Prime, YouTube, Apple TV, or Redbox. Or you can just go buy it. It is absolutely a must-have if you collect, or you just watch horror movies, you know? Like, this, even if you don't collect them, this is like a movie you should have on your shelf. My opinion. Yeah, even non-horror movie fans. Like, if you're going to have any horror movie... Yeah, this make, is it, it. make this one of them. This is it. Uh, so The Exorcist is a 1973 American supernatural horror film directed by William Friedkin, uh, written by William Peter Blatty, based on his 1971 novel of the same name. The film stars uh, Ellen Burstyn, Max von Sydow, Jason Miller, and Linda Blair. The story follows the demonic possession of a young girl and her mother's attempts to rescue her through an exorcism by two Catholic priests. It had a budget of $12 million and made a massive $428.2 million. It is 122 minutes long, except the director's cut, which is 132 minutes long. It was released in 24 theaters on, get this, December 26th, 1973. Yeah, fuck you, Christmas. <laughs> yeah, to mixed reviews, but people were waiting in long lines in cold-ass weather for sold-out shows for up to four hours. Some viewers suffered severe physical reactions while watching the film, including fainting and vomiting. Surprisingly, the most shocking scene that people had reactions to was the spinal tap scene. Hmm. Yep. Okay. Yep. That is the um 
that is the most shocking scene according to people that seen the movie that was what I, I, caused people to faint it was that it was that scene well i have i have that in my notes uh well i didn't pass out or faint throw up but they did a great job that's what that was spinal tap where they look like they tap into the jugular they go into yeah the so uh so yeah it's a spinal tap so what it does I thought is, they were putting a catheter in a jugular well for, for what was then what what is now MRIs, whatever they called it back then. Well, from the, from what I understand, I didn't do a ton of research on it, but what what they were doing was they tap into the, uh, you know, in the middle of the spine. There's a basically like a tube of fluid that goes to the spinal cord to the brain. They tap into this, and they were tapping in through the front of the neck because the back of the spine is harder. So you tap in through the front. And basically, they did put like a catheter in there, and then they inject the uh, a fluid in the dye, a dye, yeah. and it goes throughout the brain. And then they take the pictures, and the dye shows them uh, pretty much the pathways of the brain. So MRIs still do well. I don't know about still. I know whenever I was a kid, they still did it. Um, but they did not go through a spinal tap. They just injected it, but it was a dye and it was to help the uh, resolution on the MRI, um, help them see the where the veins go better. Yeah, that's, that's essentially what's going on here. Um, this scene is so realistic that they used this scene for a really long time when training uh, the technicians, um, the actual medical technicians for, for this. They would show them this scene because it was so accurate that essentially it was like looking at the real thing. Well, they did a good job. I'm not one that gets like queasy over needles in any way. I find it worse to watch a needle go into somebody else than I do myself, but it's still not not that big of a deal. But that scene was extremely unsettling. Almost like a uh, your skin crawling scene. I think what it is, is, you know, we're so used to horror movies, you get that stream of blood, which is not realistic. But in here, we're getting that heart pump of blood. And that is something we're not used to seeing that's more realistic. And I think that is where uh, the the kind of um, bringing that into a more real, like a more reality based uh, thing, you know, it kind of freaks people out instead of just like the very fake looking stream of blood just pouring out of her neck but well hey amen to linda blair for letting them do a spinal tap on her yeah could you imagine that as much as she talks about the the whipping back and forth scene if they Uh, did a spinal tap on her how how many interviews that would be in yeah this uh another thing about this movie too is this was the first time that uh can't think i can't distribution distribution there we go company yeah thank you um had made a deal with theaters to do what they call a four like a i think it's like a four wall theater uh showing which what that means is that was the first time that a movie took up every single screen in a theater in those theaters and now we got taylor swift doing uh, that yeah. it's ridiculous well i mean is. even taylor swift like she doesn't have every screen like there's still other movies i mean she may have the majority of them but when the exorcist came out it was in like every theater on every screen and there still wasn't enough theaters for people to see it there was people standing out in the snow for hours apparently there was people that stood out there so long that they got frostbite injuries 
just trying to see this fucking movie. I wish if I had a time machine, I'd go back and I would I would wait just to get to experience that with people who are experiencing that for the first time. Oh, um, yeah. Mom said she got to see it in, in uh, drive through when it came out. She was a little kid. Just been a little, little kid. She was like four. I mean, how awesome would that be? I, I, I know it's coming up. It's supposed to come in theaters. I, it's the closest we'll ever come to experiencing it. I'm, I'm stoked. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the day this episode comes out is the same day we will be in theaters seeing The Exorcist uh, on its 50th anniversary. Nice. So uh, several cities attempted to ban it outright to prevent children from seeing it because back then the the uh, the rating system was different. So children could go see a rated R movie back then, apparently from 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 how from how it was explained. And because kids could could go into these movies and see something like this cities actually attempted to just ban it outright from the city because you know, they're like kids, you know, we, there's no other way we can stop the kids from seeing this. So surprised they even cared about that back then as, as lax as they are. Like kids were like smoking cigarettes and getting well, it's sent a religious to war thing, at like though. 12, you know, it was a religious thing because big time religious leaders came out and That's there was true. some of them that said that the film, the actual film reel itself was possessed by a demon. Like if you went and seen this film, you would leave possessed by a demon. Like, you know, there's just a lot of ridiculous fear mongering. Man, I, I wish that reel was was uh, actually possessed. This this movie's that good. It may <laughs> have been. But yeah, I, I forgot about the religious aspect of it. Yeah. Of course, this, you leave it up to religion. You know, you could you could drink beer at twelve, but you know, you know, God forbid you did anything anti-religious. Yeah, they were sent. You were like thirteen, getting sent into. Well, I got World War Two wasn't. That's about what 20, you were thirteen 20 years, going to Nam. Thirty years before this, yeah, S- smoking just, smoking Jays and Nam. Yeah, coming back having a wife and kid by fifteen and a a, a space leg. <laughs> Lieutenant Dan. Lieutenant Dan, guess basically. Uh, it was the first horror film to be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture. It didn't win, so fuck you, Academy Awards. Uh, William Blatty won Best Adapted Screenplay, and the movie also won Best Sound. Uh, until the movie It came out, which is, what, it was like 2017, 2018? When did It come out? Um, I would say 16 or 17. I think it was before we joined the army. Um, was it before? I thought it was like, I thought it came out right when we got, went into the army. Either way, 16 or 17. Somewhere around there. But, uh, so until that movie came out, The Exorcist was the highest grossing horror film. The Library of Congress selected the film for preservation in the National Film Registry for being, uh, culturally, I cannot speak. Culture. Culture. I like it. I Historically like it. or aste- aesthetically significant. <laughs> I bet you. It, this, when did they do that? Do you uh, know when? No, I don't. It's probably later on. I bet you they would have shit back in the day if they would have known that Congress was going to select that for being cultural. I, I think it was uh, somewhat recently. It was not back then. I want to say off the top of my head, I want to say it was like 2012. But I, I could be wrong. I know it wasn't back then, though. Yeah, they were wanting to like ban it back then, and they were. Yeah. You know, it was, man. 
Yeah, I'm surprised wish... they made this movie back then. The stuff that's in it. Holy I agree. shit. This movie would be controversial now. Oh, but... yeah. Yeah. Uh, I got so a couple spots in my notes, but that's one thing that makes this movie so good is they don't hold back. Like, there's no, there's no tape around it. Like, they let it loose. And that, for me, seeing this for the first time as a kid, there's certain scenes that would be controversial today that just grilled into my mind. And uh, I, I absolutely adore this movie to this day because of some of those scenes. So a quick background. Um, the novel was based off of a real case of a 1949 exorcism performed by a priest. The book didn't do well at first, but it did eventually top the New York Times bestseller list. There wasn't a ton of interest from the studios uh, when it came to buying the rights, turning it into a uh, turning the book into a movie. But Blatty did get some modest offers. He kind of scared everyone away, though, because he would only sell the rights if he was allowed to produce the film like he. You know, he he wasn't letting anyone else fuck it up, I guess. Hey, well, thank God he did that, because we may not have this fucking amazing gem of a movie that we have without that. Yeah, he was really picky about who the director was and everything, and he actually picked the director, and the director came on board, and uh, and Blatty, had, who had wrote the book, had turned around and wrote the screenplay as well, and he had done some minor uh, dialogue changes, and he had sent the screenplay to the guy he wanted to direct it and he read it and he loved it and he immediately read the book right after and then he called him and he said all those changes that you made in the screenplay get rid of those the dialogue from the book is perfect we want to he's like if i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it exactly like the book like i don't want to change anything so that's that and that's why we get this version of the movie that is so dead on this book that was written. But uh yeah, he was pretty dead set on this uh demand and he eventually got his way and was allowed to produce the film. When it comes to the book versus the movie, they are they are pretty close. Obviously, they uh there's a lot of filler that was cut for time. Some of that uh, filler, some of the stuff that was cut was like the vandalism of the church. Like they kind of investigated that. The medical tests on Reagan, there was a bunch of that that was cut out cut, or cut shorter. Karis and Kinderman's relationship, like they had kind of become friends or something something like that. It, it wasn't so cut and dry as it is in the movie. Karis trying to convince the church to do the exorcism. The church actually put up a fight in the book at first, which which uh, makes a lot more sense because churches just don't say okay. Well, he says that in the in the movie too. Like they don't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. um, that's why he has to go back and kind of try to record evidence, even though he's skeptical himself. I feel like that was definitely a, a for time thing. How, it wouldn't be an episode if I didn't hit this fucking mic. Yeah. <laughs> There's your one mic. There's your one mic hit for this episode. Undefeated on the mic. Yep. Hit. I cannot. I can't resist punching this fucking thing. An interesting note about the book, though, um, and I love this. For every symptom and behavior she exhibits that indicates that she is possessed, 
a counterbalanced with reference to an actual case where the same issue is found to have a natural scientific explanation, causing everyone, especially Karis, to go back and forth about her actually being possessed. Love that. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Because they, they don't reference any other cases. They do try to convince her, like, the bed thing was, uh, you know, that happens, which clearly, if you've seen the bed thing uh, in the beginning, like, the first sign of, oh, shit, something, something's going on here. Well, well, they, they touch on that. Like, they didn't cut it all out. They left one thing in the movie that goes back to this uh, thing that they do in the book, which is the holy water. Remember, he takes the tap water and he throws it on her. And he was like, oh, this is bullshit. Like, obviously yeah. this is. So in yeah, the book, they, he did a ton of that stuff where half of it was like, there's no way she could know that. There's no way she could do that. And the other half was like, he had r- found uh, ways that she it seemed that she was making it up. And you go through the whole story of like, this kind of seems like she's full of shit, but you, it's so 50-50, you could go either way. Yeah, he he in the movie... So he gets his mind changed like once or twice I, for for movie's sake. They probably didn't have time to have half the movie they, and they going did, back and forth. But you can tell uh, specifically after that test, he's like, you can tell he's he's like, OK, she's faking. But he's still based off of what he's seen. He still isn't 100 percent convinced. And then that's when she's like admits that that she killed Burke and then he's like, all right, well, there's no way this kid did this. Let me look into it some more. But yeah, I see why they did that. Definitely to save time. Yeah. Probably I mean, better for the movie's movie. already long. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's uh, what I say it was like an hour and 35 minutes. It's over two hour long movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's long, uh, a little bit. Of, we'll talk a little bit about the casting. Jack Nicholson was considered for for the part of Father Karras. I hate that. I hate it. Agreed. Uh, so they um, they shot that down. Uh, Blatty and freaking freaking didn't like the him being cast because he was known as like such a kind of partier and stuff at that time that they were like he can't play a priest. Like there's no way. And then they also, they didn't want to hire like these super high list A-listers because there's a, I didn't put it in here because there's just so much, but there was a ton of like big, big time famous um, actors that they wanted to give these roles to, but they didn't want to give these roles because then the movie would overshadow, like these actors would overshadow Reagan and Reagan is really like the center, supposed to be the center of this thing. And she is. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, that's good choice. I don't know if they would have gotten other actors if it would have changed that, but because she does such an amazing job in this movie. But hey, well, they made the right choice because it's a fantastic movie. Well, it was almost like I'll go through this here in a second, but it was almost like these these main people here that are in this movie. It was like they were meant to be in this movie. So, well, you know, we'll, we'll run through this real quick because this is really, uh, interesting. I thought so, uh, Ellen Burstyn, she got the part after she told the director that she was destined to play Chris McNeil. 
She was raised in a strict Catholic household that uh, she rejected the, the religion when she had gotten older. So she really felt this connection um, to play Chris McNeil. Jason Miller was a stage actor that had received a uh, Catholic education and studied to be a Catholic priest for three years at a Catholic University of America until experiencing a spiritual crisis similar to Karis in the film. After reading the book, he told the director, Karis is me. They had already cast Father Karis at the time, but after a screen test with Jason Miller, they fired the other dude. They bought out his whole entire contract just to give Jason Miller the part. Yeah, I couldn't imagine anybody else in... in uh, he had never been in a movie before. I, I put him in there as Father Damien, but uh, Father Karis is probably the more correct uh, term. But yes, I couldn't imagine anybody else in, in this role. And, you know, bringing that up about the actors, not wanting A-list actors, I think that was... So when you watch this movie, the way they filmed it, it's almost like you're there in some points. And this was based off a true story. And that, uh, you know, sure people knew that when it was coming out. It it wouldn't have had that same feel if it would have been A-list actors. Yeah, they wanted like Marlon Brando and just like all these big time, like uh, Audrey Hepburn and all like, and uh, I'm I'm so glad they didn't go. They didn't go with uh, with these big time these big time people. Uh, Janet Lee would not let her daughter Jamie Lee Curtis audition because the screenplay was way too dark. Thank God. <laughs> Agreed. I would not want to see young Jamie Lee Curtis in this movie. I don't want to see Jamie Lee Curtis in anything other than what we already have her. On. Yeah. I'll just say that to be nice. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So they were going to have to give up and cast either an older kid because no one would let their kid do the movie or um, the kids that the parents would let them do it. They just weren't good enough to carry the film. So they were like, we're either going to have to hire like a like a teenager or they floated the idea of hiring a, um, a small person. Oh, thank God they didn't <laughs> do that. Jesus yep. Christ. Um, I think, uh, and you probably have this in your notes, but I think from what I remember, they were having a really hard time, and then they spoke to Linda Blair, and they were like, she was just, she she had a maturity about her and things that she knew that most kids didn't know at that age. Oh, we're about to talk about um, her. I think they asked her, like, do you know what, like, uh, masturbating with a crucifix means or something like that? And she 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 knew what it was and she could handle it. So they gave it to her. Yeah. So in walked Eleanor Blair unannounced with her daughter, Linda, who had only done some modeling and one soap soap opera role. Uh, he asked Linda if she knew what the movie was about. And she said, yes, that she had read the book. And what she had said of the book was that um, it was pretty much, you know, about this possession and that Reagan pushes a man out of her bedroom window and hits her mother across the face and masturbates with a crucifix. The director asked her if she knew what masturbation was, and she responded, It's like jerking off, isn't it? And he said, Have you ever done that? She said, Sure, haven't you? Yep. Twelve-year-old Linda Blair was masturbating. Yeah, she had, strict, about it. She had strict parents, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> 
yeah, so she was not she was not in the dark about what was going on. I and, mean, and thank God for that because this movie probably wouldn't be what it what it was without that. I I just I can't think of any other kid in this role. And she does it like I feel like because she knew about these things, the way that she plays the character, the things she has to say in this movie that doesn't come off unnatural or odd at all. It's very unnerving because it's a kid saying them, but she's like, sounds like an adult saying it. Like she, she has that confidence because she knows what she's saying. Well, she plays that kid, the kid version, and she plays that like, you know, uh, I want to say almost adult version. She straddles that line like so well. Because in the beginning, she is super believable as like this 11, 12-year-old kid. She's very bubbly, and you would never think that she knew anything or acted like that or any of that stuff. But yeah, she she is great. Principal photography began uh, on, in August of 1972. And although the film is set in Washington, D.C., many of the interior scenes were shot in New York City. The McNeil home interiors were shot in Manhattan at a studio, and the opening scenes were shot in uh, Mosul, Iraq, which I have been. And when I was watching this movie, I was taking notes. I said, that is wherever they went is dead on Iraq because I've been to northern Iraq. And I was like, man, they've nailed it. And then in my research of this movie discovered that that is 100 percent northern Iraq. Those are all Iraqis. Um, they actually went over there. The studio did not want them to go over there because we did not have a good relationship with Iraq. At the, our government didn't have a good relationship with Iraq at the time, but the Iraqi government allowed them to come over there and film on the condition that they teach, um, uh, professional film, like how to professionally film movies to Iraqi filmmakers. And, uh, so that's why they let him go over there. Um, I, so I don't know what I, what the area in Mosul was called, uh, but what I read is that there's a lot of significance in the area that they shot in because it was an actual archaeological site that it was. that was very uh, that was very tied to religion. It was a real dig site. Uh, they did let them come into an active dig site. Those were act actually workers that that's what they did for a living that's is that scene is a very realistic scene they pretty much shot on location during a real thing and when i was there there is a lot of spots um up there that there's these religious areas that are really important not just to like the muslims but there's a lot of christian um stuff up there too there, there is a big time, uh, a lot, a lot of religious history happened in that area, and I remember that being a really big thing there. And like ISIS had come in there years before I had gotten there, and that was one thing that ISIS did was they destroyed a lot of these religious places that we had managed to keep. Like out of all the war that's went on there, everyone kind of mutually agreed not to fuck that shit up because it was important to everybody. And this group came in and kind of fucked it up as a fuck you to everybody. And uh, that was really unfortunate. But but yeah, that is exactly what Northern Iraq looks like. It's 
uh, people think it's desert. It looks like uh, like Aladdin or something, but it's really just a ton of rock. I mean, everything's tan. That's correct. That's right. But a lot of it's sand. a lot of rock. And one thing I did see, um, I don't know if a lot of people catch it, but there's like one of the last scenes at the dig site, there's a sandstorm starting. Uh, they don't actually show the sandstorm in full effect, but you can see it starting because um, there's a bunch of sand and wind that start kicking up. And that's what happens. The sandstorm starts and those are no joke. But um, the exterior of the house was a family home on 36 and Prospect Street in Washington. The stairs were padded a half an inch of rubber for Kareth's death fall. Uh, for the exorcism scenes, a refrigerated set was built that was able to cool the room down to 20 degrees. And because the lights were so hot, uh, it would warm the air in the room too fast. And it would only allow for it to remain cold enough to shoot a three-minute scene at a time. The, uh, the famous scene where um, Father Marin arrives at the McNeil's home, that was inspired by Rene, mm, I'm going to fuck this up, Magratis, a, uh, a 1954 painting called Empire of Light. The cinematographer, um, Roseman, said that this was the most difficult of all the nighttime scenes to shoot. The wind had picked up and blew, was blowing the fog away. But uh, by working really fast, they were actually able to get that uh, shot on the first take. So that is a first take shot. And that is also the guy who plays Father Marin. That was his first day on set. First thing he shot. Nice. That's the poster. Yep. Poster for the movie. It is. Yeah. A lot of people consider the production or the set cursed. Uh, there was a lot of accidents and death that did occur uh, during and after filming. And interestingly, Paul Bateson, the technician in the spinal tap scene, was convicted of murdering journalist Addison Verl in 2015. And he also admitted, but he was not convicted, to basically being a serial killer. Yeah, I was wondering if you were going to bring that up. Uh, he, yes. He's because actually interviewed in Netflix's uh, Mind Hunter. It's in the season of that. They actually go talk to him. That's interesting. So one thing that was interesting was uh, when I watched the movie last night, I seen him and I was like, I don't ever really remember there being a male nurse because male nurses weren't super common back then. And I was like, I seen him and I said, man, I bet you he caught a lot of shit for being a male nurse back then. And then when I did the research later on, I was like, well, ain't that some shit? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he never noticed a lot before. of shit. Never noticed Started him before. killing people for it. Uh, one of the other uh, nurses in the movie actually is uh, Linda Blair's actual mom. Oh, I did not know that. Yep. Ready to get into the plot? Yes. All right. I'm very much ready to get in the plot. So we start out with a shot of a home located in the residential area of Washington, D.C. Uh, then we get a quick glimpse of a statue of the face of the Virgin Mary and then a beautiful red and black title card. Then we head over to a uh, dig site in northern Iraq, and a Catholic priest named Father Marin unearths a medallion of St. Joseph, as well as the head of a statue of the demon Pazuzu. You can tell finding this thing has uh, had like 
some kind of like profound effect on Father Marin because he's kind of like spaced out throughout the day. Like he almost steps in front of this car. He he seems like it's like on his mind a lot. He's kind of thinking about this thing. And, um, you know, after a day or so, he ultimately decides to leave Iraq and head back home. But on his way out, he stops by the dig site and we get a shot of a full-size version of the statue appearing uh, in front of Father Marin. Appearing quite excited as well. <laughs> so the Pazuzu statue has a uh, big dick. Big, big dick, yeah. And yeah. so here's the thing. Does the demon really have that big of a dick? Or when he had like the humans build the statue, did he, was he like... Hey, put a little extra dick on there for me. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure everybody who's ever had a statue, naked statue built, it's like, hey, yeah, that that's a little small, don't you think? Add a little bit to that. A couple more inches, a little bit more thickness of that dick there for me. I don't want I don't want people to think I'm uh he's like not powerful. He's you know how all the Greek statues was like very flaccid penises. This guy was this demon was like I I got to be shown in a good light. You you got to make this hard, like yeah. You got to make it a hard on. It's a I can't big, have a little flash of dick. I'm it, I'm a demon. I mean yeah. Not not only is it huge, but it is very erect. He very, just walks around much. with that morning wood all the time. He popped the Viagra before they uh, sculpted him. I get. I was gonna say take a picture, but I guess it was, no. It wasn't happening back then when. Who knows when this demon had himself sculpted, but uh, mm. he had to pop a Viagra so he could stay hard for uh, three days while they sculpted this dick. Uh, also, I, I've i never really understood why he goes back to the dick site. I do. Ooh, what do you got? I got uh, it might be something that should be mentioned later on down the road um you can save it for later on so it's it it ties into and i don't know if this is something you had uh but it ties into the saint joseph uh coin as well Mm, no i don't a lot of people think that the one that damien has on at the end was the same one and it's not oh i definitely don't think it's the same one like how would he get it father Marin didn't show up until like two hours before a lot of people a lot of people ask that question and uh, the director was like, well, they're they're missing the right question, which the right question was, what was this contemporary Christian coin doing in a dig site that dated before Christianity? Like, how did this get there? And that's why he makes that comment. He says, he, he says, yeah, it, yeah, I know uh, he, he mentioned Arabic, it. but he's he's so the actual translation was how could that have gotten there? But in the English in the in the movie they put like that's weird or something like that's the translation. But um yeah, so when he when he finds these two things at the same time, he knows that he's gonna have to fight Pazuzu again. This isn't the first time he's fought Pazuzu. This Didn't is why that. he goes back. So whenever they first they the church is talking about getting him, they said he's got experience. 10 or 12 years back in Africa, he did a possession or exorcism and it almost killed him. That was Pazuzu. Oh, that he yeah, was that that. He, the, the one that almost killed him. So when he found these two things, he knew. He, he, he knew that he was going to have to fight Pazuzu again. And that's why when they walk up to him in the woods and tell him he's being called back, 
to Washington D.C. to do this. He Very instantly nice. t- he knows. They say he knew from the moment he got off the plane that he was going to fight Pazuzu. And that's why he's so nervous. That's why he's taking this medication. He's super shaky because it almost killed him the first time he did the exorcist on Pazuzu. Then he finds this statue of this demon that almost killed him. And finding that with the coin, he knew right then that they were going to meet again. That's interesting. I didn't know any of that. Uh, So next we jump to Georgetown, Washington, D.C., and we meet famous actress Chris McNeil. And she is uh, starring in a film that's being directed by her friend uh, Burke Dennings. Chris and her 12-year-old daughter Reagan are renting a nice home in Georgetown while they are filming the movie. They also have uh, two people working for them at the home that kind of like assist Chris with things around the home. Uh, Pretty much as soon as we meet Chris, we see that she is hearing odd noises in the house and specifically the attic. And she thinks that they're rats and she plans on having one of the employees kind of take care of it by setting some traps. And uh, the next day we do get our first glimpse of Father Damien Karras the head psychiatrist who counsels Georgetown University's priests. And later that day after filming, we see Chris walking home, and I noticed that it's Halloween. Halloween that day. It's weird. It's never mentioned in the movie, but uh, I guess that's the the only sign. It's, It's definitely Halloween, and that's why we put it in October. Yeah, uh, this is the first time I noticed the kids running around in costumes with the like punk, the you know the pumpkin bucket. I don't know. I didn't. I never really caught that before. But uh, I assume it's Halloween because why would kids kids do that? That was a normal thing in DC back then. Maybe that's uh, that's what happens when you let kids dress themselves. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, she gets home and she's talking to Reagan, and we learn that Reagan is definitely putting off some horse girl energy. But they definitely have a good and loving relationship, and Reagan is just a normal 12-year-old girl who likes horses. She really, She's a fucking horse girl. really likes horses. Uh, after that, we see Father Karras visiting his very old and very poor mother. The bed is next to the front door. That is how you know your apartment is small as fuck. <laughs> Your bed isn't even in like another part of the place. It's literally next to the front door. Like you sleep next to the hallway that everyone walks down. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah, I think it's only two rooms. There's like the room where she's got like the rocking chair in and then there's the room with the front door and the bed. So it happens on that old fixed income. Yep. Uh, But obviously, she's not in great health. He tries to convince her to move somewhere where she won't be alone, but she refuses. After this, he meets a colleague at a bar and confides in him that uh, he feels unfit in his role because he's uh, having a crisis of faith. This is actually interesting because this ties back into him being the perfect one for this because he mentions that some of the stuff he's seeing can't be just psychiatry like it can't be just psychiatry issues like there's got a there's an issue of faith here and there's something going on religious um, which which ties into him being the perfect one for this case 
The next day, we see Chris and Reagan hanging out in the basement slash game room. And this is where we find out that Reagan has been talking to an imaginary friend named Captain Howdy. Uh, She's been using an old Ouija board that she found in the closet. And Chris tells her that you're supposed to have two people to use the board. Reagan tells her that uh, it's been working just fine while she's been using it alone. Chris goes to touch the planchette and it quickly moves away from her on its own. Later that night, Chris gets a phone call about a change in the movie script when she finds Reagan in her bed. She asks Reagan what is she doing in her room and Reagan says that she can't sleep because her bed has been shaking. Yeah, so one thing I've noticed, and I don't know if I caught this before, but literally from the very first scene that we see of any of the big kneels, there's activity in this house. Yep. The, the first scene of Reagan, she's in bed and she's like sweating her ass off and you hear the rats. Mm-hmm. And Yeah. And I, I, you know, I think now like Reagan is probably like already in the process of being possessed because I know it's like normally this takes a while already, already in that process before we even see them on screen. Yeah. I, I agree with Cause that. Cause she claims she's it's... been using this thing. Yeah. I, and I think they set that up like that on purpose. Yeah, I don't know. I never really, you know, I never really noticed, uh, caught that it was already going on so early. But uh, so the next day we see Reagan. She's going to the doctor for what seems to be just a checkup. We get a couple of scenes of her acting different and having a much different personality. She is very rude and sometimes kind of spaced out. The doctor meets with Chris in his office and he says a bunch of doctor shit and blah, 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 blah. Reagan basically has what we would now call ADHD. Yeah, I guess hyperkinetic activity was the first versions of ADHD. Yeah. When I was a kid, it was ADD. Now it's ADHD. Well, they, I think, uh, yeah, they still have ADD, but I think if you're hyper as fuck, they, they add the H. In there. They, there was no H back, back <laughs> when. I, I guess they hadn't discovered the H yet, but I guess now there's like the H and the ADD. But he prescribed her Ritalin and thinks this is all pretty normal. Yeah, he he says that Reagan tells him to keep his fingers away from her goddamn cunt. Uh, that doesn't sound like uh, ADD or ADHD to me. That's, yeah. That sounds like another issue. I don't think Ritalin's going to help. Yeah. And when he tells Chris this, it's hard for me to tell, but it kind of looks like they're both trying not to laugh. She, you know, she clearly is trying not to laugh. And he kind of seems like he's over there smirking too, though. Like not as bad as her, but they, I was like, this is kind of weird because it looks like they're going to laugh about this. I'm going to be honest. If I'm a doctor and a, some yeah. <laughs> 12 year old kid tells me to keep my fingers away from her goddamn cunt, I would probably laugh about it too. Not, not right then. I'd laugh about not it in later. Front of the kid. Yeah, for sure. But uh, I would, when I, I would go back and like tell you and I, I go to Brooke and be like, you're not going to believe what this fucking kid told me today. (laughs) Um, After this, we see Father Karras' mother has fallen ill and is now in a rundown lower class hospital. Uh, Karras goes to see her and promises to get her out and take her back home. Yeah, this sucks because she's she's in like the psych ward now. And it seems like he's familiar probably with some of those patients because they kind of brush him. I don't know. Mm. Um, because he is the, the psychiatrist, but 
she totally is blaming him for being there. And it was her brother who put her there. Yeah. That, f- fuck his uncle, by yeah, the way. Yeah. Who's blaming him because he doesn't make enough money as a priest. And he's like, well, if you wasn't a priest, like you'd be making a bunch of money as a psychiatrist. The 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 church paid for his education like if the church wouldn't have paid for his education would he have still went to harvard probably not that's that's expensive and hard to get into yeah regardless i'm a super religious person but it's a commendable thing to do to stay in that job and for somebody to like i would never give somebody shit for not making money because they're doing what they truly believe is the right thing to do. Yeah, and at this point, he already has the education. Like the edu- the, the degrees don't belong to the church. Like he definitely could leave the church and go and have this career and he needs the money, but he doesn't because he believes in the career. And his uncle, yeah, fuck him. Yeah, that's not especially like if that is your opinion, that's not the time to say that. You know, like especially when your broke ass ain't contributing anything. Yeah, I don't think there is a time to really say that. I think that's none of his business. And uh, I think that him putting the blame on uh, Damon was, was a really shit thing to do. Yeah, so later that night, we see that Chris is throwing a big party at her home. There's a lot of famous people there, uh, including Burke Dennings, uh, her director friend, and a famous astronaut that recently got back from space. We also meet Father Dyer, who is a young, social, and good-looking Catholic priest who is very close friends with Father Karras. Chris sits down to have a drink with uh, Father Dyer at some point during this party, and she asks him about Father Karras. I think she's kind of got the hots for him, honestly. He informs her of uh, Karras' position as the head psychiatrist of the church, uh, the the sector there in Georgetown, and that he has had a rough couple days because he recently found his mother dead in her apartment. And because she had lived alone, it had she had been dead for some time when he found her. Yeah, this that is sucks. so they obviously skip forward, and this yes. makes a little bit of sense because Reagan is, uh, it seems like in the movie, she's rapidly progressed mm-hmm. within a day or two, but his mom's been dead in there for days. She's obviously been slowly getting worse and worse. Um, fun fact, Father Dyer is a real priest. Well, you stole that fun fact from the end of the episode, so fuck you. Well, I thought you would have <laughs> I thought you would have released that in the beginning when you were talking nope. about the actors. Back half has got some fun stuff too. Uh later on, most of the party uh heads home, leaving only a few party guests left. Reagan comes from, uh, she comes down from upstairs and she stands in the hallway. She's kind of staring at the guests. And then she informs the astronaut <laughs> that they're going to die up there. I like that. She's like, you're going to die in space. Peace. Demons don't like space. They're like Woody, like stupid space toys. But uh, then she proceeds to piss all over herself and the rug. <laughs> Bad dog. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, she, um, she cleans Reagan up and puts her back to bed, but then suddenly the bed starts violently shaking. Chris jumps on the bed to stop it from moving, but it shakes just as hard with both of them on it. So later on, we see Chris takes Reagan to the doctor. Uh, her personality has become violent and the doctor, uh, he runs multiple tests on her only to find nothing wrong. 
So the doctor believes it must be like a uh, issue deep in Reagan's brain. He informs Chris that they need to start doing like more advanced tests on her mind to try to locate this problem and uh, that she shouldn't worry. Yeah, they try to try to convince her that she has a lesion on her frontal lobe, which causes like seizures and, and uh, violent uh, act outs, I guess. After seeing the fucking bed and jumping on the bed, there ain't no way a doctor could convince. After this point, there ain't no way a doctor could convince me that my child was doing this. Yeah, he called uh, it like uh, like muscle spasms or something. Yeah, he's yeah he tries. Yeah, that's exactly what he says. I think it's like muscle spasms, and, uh, and there ain't no fucking way I would be like, look, I was there. Well, this is uh, where Reagan goes in for the famous uh, spinal tap. And, uh, you know, we kind of explain what the spinal tap is, but essentially it's that, you know, they're just tapping into her, her spine where her, you know, fluid runs into the brain. But this is, um, known to be an extremely painful procedure. And, uh, the pictures of Reagan's brain from the spinal tap show that her brain is totally normal. And the doctors are a little dumbfounded about this. Uh, during a house call, the two doctors show up to the McNeil home to find like pure madness going down in Reagan's room. She's bouncing like uncontrollably on the bed, uh, being kind of like thrown around. She has like this abnormal strength. She slaps the doctor like to the fucking floor, which I loved. Like soon as he goes in there and tries to like take charge, she puts his fucking ass down um, it takes all four of them to like hold her down just to uh, sedate her. After this, Chris speaks to the doctors out in the hallway, and they still believe it is an issue deep in Reagan's brain. This upsets Chris, but she decides to continue with the tests. Yeah, this this is crazy. Let's show you the difference in where medical the medical field was then. So they're actually convincing her that she shouldn't take her to a psychiatrist they're just regular doctors they're not psychiatrists and they're saying well any any normal psychiatrist would rule out everything before treating her for anything uh when nowadays when this first started the first place they have sent you was a psychiatrist also the scene before this where she's convulsing back and forth like this is just a like what we were talking about earlier with Linda Blair, like when she when she's on the bed and she's she's screaming "fuck me" to them, like that shit. That was one of those scenes as a kid that just was like, I was like five, like oh my fucking god, it's just it's another kid saying this right now. Yeah, uh, really, really a testament to her acting. This is also the scene that she mentions in every interview now, where. I think that's it. Where she this hurt, is a contraption. Yeah, she didn't get strapped in um, tight enough, and it ended up causing her a back injury, which led to her to have scoliosis, uh, which causes her back pain essentially the rest of her life. And uh, yeah, that is shitty. But she uh, is very bitter about it still. Yeah, yeah, that sucks. I, I can't say it is really much shitty. More than that but, sucks, you know, but you what, made a what, fucking great movie. What well, you know? What can you do? Um, you know, I wouldn't want to live my life still mad about something. But yeah, she's 
she's no and this this movie being what it was probably made her a lot of money because she was in some movies after this nothing nothing like crazy um but i know she did some movies very soon after this actually i think there's a a lot that one of the movies she did after this is uh a very debated movie because there's like nudity in it and she's she's not of age uh but she did like a bunch of movies right after this and it's how much money did doing this movie make you like i i wouldn't go on record complaining about it like i regret doing it yeah so next we see reagan being put through uh like more and more medical tests including another spinal tap uh doctors can't find uh, anything so they finally recommend taking Reagan to a psychologist. After the meeting with the doctor, Chris drives home to find uh, the, the, the house empty and Reagan is asleep upstairs. She gets pretty upset about this and a few minutes later her assistant arrives informing her that she had to run to the pharmacy to pick up Reagan's medication and that she left Burt Dennings to watch Reagan until she returned. Moments later, we get a knock on the door. A friend of Chris's informs her that Burke has been found dead. He was found at the bottom of the concrete steps behind the McNeil house. This is when we get this fucking dope-ass backward spider crawl down the stairs with the blood pouring out of her mouth. Yes. Right after this. Iconic. Yes. Iconic after... 2000 something when they put it back in but yes very very iconic uh scene there's another thing too is i don't i don't really know who the guy who the mutual friend is that comes and tells her like burke's dead or whatever but he comes in there and he's like yeah burke's dead and she gets upset and she cries and he kind of like pats her on the back and then he literally turns around and leaves and i was just like he's he's got that mindset of like okay i told you i'm leaving now like, I've at least been, like, you know, hung around for a couple of minutes. Like, yeah, this is good. So, but I just feel like he was just like, okay, I told you I'm leaving. He was probably <laughs> like, when she, when she said she didn't know, he was probably like, fuck. Yeah. I got to like, be the one to break know? the news. You don't God know. damn it. Well, I'm just going to tell you. And then uh, I got some groceries in the car. I got to yeah. I got to split. Uh, millionaires coming on. I got to I got to catch it. Yeah. I just pull the <laughs> bandaid off r- real quick. Um, yeah, he dips the fuck out of that scene uh, uh, super quick. So then we see Reagan. Uh, finally, she finally meets with the psychologist and it doesn't go well. And essentially she tries to rip a stick off. That's pretty much all I got to say about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, next, we meet Detective Kinderman. He's investigating Burke Denning's death. And he meets with Father Karras to ask him some questions. Karis thinks that it was an accident, but the detective says that that may be possible, but Burke's injuries were so severe that it looks more like he was beaten to death before he was even thrown uh, down the steps. Uh, he was he claims that his head had been twisted completely around. Then we jump back to Chris and Reagan, who are back at the hospital and there is a whole team of doctors working on the case. I paused it and I counted 13, 13 doctors. I think uh so when the detective goes back to he thinks so there is very quick shots of somebody desecrating the statues in the church. So he's asking him like, you know, who do you think 
that might be doing both of these, you know, this, this very like ritualistic murder. And then also the desecration to the church. Could these two things be, uh, could they be tied together, yeah. but they never go back to who's desecrating the church. Yeah, yeah. And it may it kind of ties it in, like, how much influence does Pazuzu have over this entire situation? Not just Reagan. Uh, because it seems as if he does, you know, those two things are related. And uh, there's a couple other things later on with other people that kind of makes it seem like he has a lot more influence over this whole this whole situation than you might think. Well, if you've ever seen The Exorcist 3, you realize Pazuzu has a lot more influence over things going on than you may realize. So they're all, all these doctors, they're all sitting at this big table with Chris McNeil. And they tell her that they can't find a single thing wrong with Reagan. They have totally run out of ideas. The room gets real quiet for a moment, and finally, one of them mentions possessions, exorcisms, and religious beliefs. They suggest that this is all in Reagan's head, and that maybe a priest coming in performing a ritual will use the power of suggestion to stop it. She tricked herself into this, maybe she can trick herself out of it. Once Chris and Reagan return home, Detective Kenderman visits the McNeil home. He talks to Chris about the night Burke died and mentions he would like to speak to Reagan. But Chris says no because Reagan's been very ill lately. And this is when the detective tells her that she should watch out for drafts. Because apparently germs ride drafts like magic carpets. Apparently. I'm like, okay, all right. Um, this is so. This is uh, actually an, another thing. So, why does Detective Kenderman not have any uh, desire to question Carl, who's the butler? Because I don't know if you noticed, but in that party scene before Reagan they, comes they downstairs, yeah, Burke and Carl get into a fight because Burke is trying to accuse him of being a, a Nazi and um, involved in, uh, you know, the concentration camps and stuff and he she even asks like would would you like to talk to carl and he's like no 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 it's not necessary but why like that and that's another thing that makes you think how much influence does pazuzu have over this entire situation because that makes no sense well i mean if i had to take a stab at it i guess i would say you know he's trusting that chris mcneil is telling him the truth about she said there was nobody there but burke because he asked her he said well could somebody have shown up here or anything could is there any like you know and she's like no there, there wasn't she, enough time between when the assistant left and the assistant came back for somebody to come in and beat him to death throw him out of a window she tells him carl was there Car- carl and their so carl's the butler and then they have the um uh, the nanny. The nanny's the one that ran out to get the medicine. So, no, when the nanny left, she, they w- Carl wasn't there. And the nanny tells Chris, like, I had to leave Burke here because there was nobody else to go get the medication. So I left Burke. And when she's talking to the cop, she said, 
Well, Burke was the only one here, but he had no reason to go up to Reagan's room. Like he would have never went up there. Like there was nobody else there. And so he asked her, like, are you sure nobody stopped by? Like, there's no way that because they're painting this picture of there's this little girl and there's this grown man. And somehow this little girl's killed this grown man. Like, this doesn't make sense. Yeah. And this guy, Carl, is the butler to this house. And she even she asks him. What, do you want to speak with Carl, the butler? Yeah, to see, and to see he's if like, maybe he came by. He, he's like, he wasn't there. No, it's not necessary. Like, why, as a it's detective, odd. why would yeah, you odd. ever, like... His, his detective skills are not great. Or Pazuzu has a lot more influence over maybe. this whole, whole thing and uh, kind of leads him away from that. Yeah, maybe. That's a good point. Uh, so... Kennerman believes that Burke fell or was pushed out of Reagan's window. And you can see that Chris is starting to think that Reagan might have killed Burke. She's got that, that look on her face when she kind of turns away from the detective. And uh, when asking a celebrity about their possible murdered friend being maybe murdered in their home, make sure... You get that autograph before you leave. Yeah, this guy's clearly a huge movie fan. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we, he asked uh, Damien to go see a movie with him. Yeah. He starts naming all the, the actors and actresses. This guy, clearly, if anybody wants somebody to go to the movies with them, Detective Kinderman is willing to go with you, yeah. 100%. Um, but back to the Chris thing. I think Chris knew as soon as, as soon as they told her Burke was dead. No, oh. I think she knew. They don't. They, they, now there's never anything in the movie that suggests that, but based off of her acting, when she finds out, I think that she knew immediately that Reagan had something to do with it. Because she she's the only one that knows the window was open. She just came back from closing the window. Yeah, I think at this stage, like she knows, but she has not fully like she doesn't want to know. And I don't think at this point in the story, she's fully accepted that that is what happened because she hasn't accepted yet that Reagan is not Reagan yet either. And, you know, yeah. Reagan was Reagan that she probably couldn't have twisted his fucking head backwards and shit. But doesn't she tell Kinderman that Burke never went up there? But she says he would have no reason to go up. But there. she knew he was up there. She was covering for Reagan because she knew. Oh, yeah, she, she knew is. He was up there and she knew the window was open. Yeah, logically, so. she knows. But I don't think she's ready to admit and accept that her child just killed her she, friend. She knows enough to cover for her kid. Oh, absolutely. That's like your human instinct. I think oh, when it comes to your child. <laughs> so this next part might be my favorite scene in the movie. It, I think it might. I don't know. It's pretty close. But the, if it's not, it's at least one of my absolute favorite parts. So as soon as detect, the detective leaves, Chris hears a ton of commotion coming from Reagan's room. She rushes upstairs and shit is fucking flying everywhere. It's like a tornado in here. Reagan is masturbating with a crucifix to the point of self-mutilation. Like, she's bleeding from her private areas. And she's telling Chris to fuck her. And as Chris runs to grab the crucifix from her, Reagan shoves Chris's face into her bloody vagina. <laughs> 
Chris pulls back and now has uh, Reagan's blood all over her face. She then gets thrown up against the wall. The two helpers, they try to run from the hallway uh, to her aid, but the door slams on them before they can get in. The door is like stuck shut. They can't get it open. And a large like dresser drawer thing then starts sliding towards Chris. And I do want to point out, and I think a, a lot of people, this is probably one of the most known facts about this movie, but when Chris slams against that wall and hits that ground, like that, uh, that was a real injury that um, the actress got uh, during that scene. Like it ended up causing her not to be able to, sh- to film any scenes for like three weeks. I, she claims that uh, it is an, is something that has caused her trouble even to this day. It's, it, you know, same thing as uh, Linda Blair. But yeah, she got uh, actually hurt. That is an actual reaction to um, something went wrong on the, uh, like, whatever, like, yanked her back. And it ended up kind of slamming her head and back into, like, the, the wall. But but yeah, so this large dresser thing kind of then slides towards Chris. But she manages to crawl out of the way. And then we cut to see Reagan sitting on the side of the bed. And her fucking head turns completely backwards and looks at Chris. And Reagan then says, do you know what she did? Your hunting daughter. This scene is, it's brilliant. It's beautiful. It's iconic. It's like a masterpiece of filmmaking. Yeah, this scene is one of those scenes. There's, there's a good two or three scenes that burned into my mind as, as a child, as a five-year-old watching this. And this, this is probably the main one is when she is stabbing herself in the vagina with the crucifix and then rubs her mom's face in it. Like I remember being a five-year-old being like, Oh my fucking God. Yeah. Like, holy shit. I mean, and my mom told me before I watched this movie, I should say our mom told, me before I watched this movie that this was this could really happen, which is why this movie scared me so much. And I remember thinking, oh my God, something can happen to me to cause me to to stab myself like that. Like uh this is and just again a testament to Linda Blair seeing a twelve year old do this, like seeing seeing an adult uh, do this in a movie. That actually been- wasn't Linda Blair that filmed that scene. That was her stand-in. Didn't know that. Well, still, supposed to be a 12-year-old, like, seeing a, supposed to be a 12-year-old do this. Like, if you've seen an adult do this in a movie today, I don't think it would stick out as much. But for me as a kid, it burned into my mind. And one thing I noticed whenever I watched it this time that I'd never noticed before, when she turns her head around and says, uh, look what your cunt daughter did to me, or your cunting daughter did to me, it's actually Burke's voice. God damn, you stole another thing from the back half of the episode. <laughs> well, I never I never noticed that. It yeah. was the first time I've ever picked yeah. up on so that. So that's as... why his voice even sounds like Burke's is it is supposed to, it's it, the demon is mimicking like it's trying to make Chris think that it's like the ghost of Burke telling her like your daughter killed me. Yeah. Yeah, and I never knew that until fucking five hours ago and if there was ever any doubt in chris's mind that reagan because remember chris just found out from the detective that his neck was broken 
backwards. Mm -hmm. Like she was just told that by the detective. And then for the head to snap around like that and say, look what your cunting daughter did to me. Now she knows for a hundred percent fact. Yeah. And that change in that voice makes a lot more sense too, because that's not the voice that she has later on when she's, you know, possessed, like full on possessed. And, you know, this whole scene makes so much more sense. And when I, when I actually was researching um, the movie, it says that you would never pick up on that unless you read it in the book. Cause in the book, you know, that this is discussed, like Chris actually talks about this. I think the scene might even be longer, but um, they don't. For some reason, they don't really make it. They kind of chopped it up in the movie, and most people don't pick up on it in the movie. But uh, it was like, oh, one of my favorite scenes just got so much cooler. So yeah, it took me probably twelve times, fifteen times to watching this movie in my life. One of my favorite movies. Yeah, that's uh, to ever pick up on that. Well, that's what you know. We've we've talked about it a couple of times. Is ever since we started doing the show and we watch movies for the show, you watch movies so much differently when you have like when you have to cover them and talk about them and dissect them. You catch so much stuff that you've you know you might watch a movie 10, 15 times, but when you watch it like this you catch so much different stuff. Man. Yeah. You, you think about every little thing yep. that happens um, in a different way as, as normally I've seen that movie so many times and I'm still in shock of the, the, the rest of the fucking scene. Like I don't ever question what, what is she talking about? I never like, understood. I just thought it was just a demon talking yeah. shit. I thought it was just talking shit. I never really put, I didn't even know that that was supposed to mean anything and it makes so much sense now, but. So at this point, you know, Chris is done. Like she's like, I have seen enough. Uh, she goes and she meets with, uh, she gets father Dyer to kind of set her up a meeting with, uh, father Karis. And, you know, she explains to him that her daughter has been sick and, uh, she kind of beats around the bush, but then she eventually mentions her being possessed. And there are two things that can make a Catholic priest stop in his tracks, altar boys and the E word. Good old E word. Yep. And you mentioned that E word and they, uh, it doesn't matter like how long they've been a priest. That is like, it's just a big, I don't know. It's just a big no, no. You know, it's like, they don't talk about that. Imagine had it been an altar boy yeah. that was possessed. She's like, he would have ran. He would have ran there. Yeah. <laughs> she maybe wish she didn't have a daughter. She had an altar boy son. It's sad. He the, got help much faster. The, the real life exorcism was a boy. So yeah, that's Pray that pray it was a good priest. Yeah. Uh, but Father Cares, he isn't having it. He doesn't believe in the possession thing. He thinks it's outdated and that she should take Reagan to a doctor. Chris gets pretty upset about this and, uh, you know, she kind of freaks out. Karis agrees to at least go and see Reagan. Uh, he walks into Reagan's room and she looks pretty terrible. Her skin is pale. She has lesions that are like oozing pus on her face and her eyes have turned fucking lime green. Look great. Yeah. So before he walks in the door, there's the growling and then walking in and seeing that I'd have been fucking convinced right there. I don't care how much I didn't believe in exorcisms. If I walked in and seen somebody looking like that and making those sounds, I'd have been like, all right. 
Let me get my recorder. Yeah. I got to get evidence. Uh, they now have the the whole bed kind of wrapped in padding, and Reagan is tied up. When Kara speaks to her, she speaks back in this deep, gravelly voice. She claims that she is no longer Reagan, that she is the devil himself, and that she plans on staying inside of Reagan's body till it rots, which doesn't seem to be too far away from the looks of it. She mentioned Karis's mother being dead and tells him that she is down in hell with them. And even after this meeting with Reagan, Karis tells Chris he still thinks it's a mental issue and it's not supernatural. He admits that he doesn't know much about possession, but he will look into it further. Uh, th- this, th- this is, um, I'm pretty sure, where he uses the holy water to try to trick her. Yes, this is. Yeah, like he, yeah. yeah he tries to... Well, no, no, no. It's actually... It's, it's the next meeting. I got it right here. Okay. So he meets with Reagan again the next day, and he discovers that she can speak Latin. He pulls out holy water, and he splashes her with it, and she reacts in pain. Later on, he tells Chris that the holy water isn't holy water. It's just tap water. And he wonders if this is real or if it's a hoax. During this conversation, Chris confides in Karis that she knows that Reagan killed Burke Dennings. Karis goes home and he listens to the recordings from his meetings with Reagan and he discovers during the gibberish parts that if you play them backwards they are actual sentences. Later that night he gets a phone call from Chris's assistant. He rushes over, she takes him upstairs to Reagan's room, Reagan's there sleeping, the assistant pulls back the covers to reveal Reagan's bare stomach where the words help me have been written from what looks to be from inside the body. Yeah, it like appears in front of his yeah. eyes. Do you know uh, what the recordings when they were played backwards? What what was being said? Um, I remember some of it. It was like uh, you know, watch out for the priest. It was something like you know. I'm I'm pretty sure, but I think it was talking about Mara, not Karis. I, I'm pretty sure that uh, what she is saying is his uh, mother's maiden name, which is the original question that he asked her. Huh. I'm pretty sure that's that's what's being uttered. Yeah, I know there is a scene where it's pretty much like, you you know, it's like the demon for some reason telling itself, like, you need to watch out for the priest. You know, the priest is going to come or something like that. Yeah, could they not? Could they fought before? Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, it's you know, down before. you know, another thing I was thinking about earlier today, because like when, you know, Father Marin shows up and you and you realize this whole movie is just boiling down to this like boxing match between Marin and Pazuzu, right? The round, whole movie, two. the whole movie is named after Marin, like the exorcist, like he is the exorcist, like he's the guy. No. And he's not even in that much of the movie, but he is like that important of this character. But so after um, so after the meetings and the recordings and then now like this situation, he decides to go to the church to request an exorcism. And at this meeting with the church leader, he explains his evidence and he mentions that he would like to do the ritual himself. The church agrees with his findings, approves the exorcism. I would be goddamned if I'm going to kiss another man's hand, though. Ugh. Yeah. Weird. Kiss the ring. Yeah, he got up and he put his hand out, and I was like, 
is he gonna like kind of shake his hand weird? I think it's a ring. And no, then he, that's the Pope. And that's then the he Pope, kissed right? his hand, and I was like, oh fuck no, oh fuck no. Yeah, that's. I'd be like, uh, yeah, thanks for the approval, but I'm not kissing your fucking hand. Like, I'm a fucking psychiatrist, yeah, and I'm not about weird. to do this to my my psych. There's there's no way I'm gonna that's I'm gonna destroy my own pride like that. Yeah, it's it's just uh, it's just weird to me. Uh, so the church decide the church does decide to send a more experienced priest uh, in exorcisms to lead the ritual and accompany Karis. They pick Father Marin, who we uh, seen in the beginning of the film. When Father Marin gets that letter, you can tell he already knows what it says. Yep, and doesn't even have to read it. This is when they. This is the part where they mention uh, a more experienced priest, and he's like, "Yeah, he did mm-hmm. ten or twelve years ago. He did an exorcism in Africa that almost killed him, and that that was the hint towards uh, this. This would be the second time he's he's thrown down with Pazuzu. And in the beginning of the movie, when he finds that Saint Joseph's with that, uh, what do they call it? The little, the little statue head he finds. Oh, yeah, the little statue. Yeah, he knows. He knows from that moment forward. And this is why when he gets that letter, he, like you said, he knows. Because he, he's been waiting on this letter. Ever since he was in Iraq and found that, he knew this day was coming. Yeah, I guess, you know, once he figured out this was going to go down, he was like, you know, fuck Iraq. It's too hot here. I'm going to go... You know, because he, he was at Woodstock, which I found out Woodstock is not like Woodstock the party. It's like Woodstock, um, you know, the Catholic um, priests had a kind of like a big commune or something called Woodstock. And I guess he's like, I'm going to go to Woodstock and I'm going to kind of enjoy my peaceful life while I can because I know this fight's coming. So he's just kind of going, chilling, relaxing because he knows it's going down. He gets this fucking letter, and he just he knows he knows he knows. Hey, turn, turns around immediately, oh. like he's already puts he's it in already, his pocket. He's already packed his bags. He's he knew this day was coming ever since he found those two things in Iraq and seen that statue. Now we get the most famous shot where Father Marin shows up to the McNeil residence in the cab. He gets out. He looks up at the house. You got the fog. You got the street lights. It's fucking perfect. Beautiful. So Father Marin comes in and he's ready to get started immediately. He has Karis gather some things they will need. And uh, one thing I noticed, when he first walks in the door, you can hear Reagan yell from upstairs and everyone kind of looks. It's like Pazuzu knows this motherfucker just showed up. Yeah, this is arch enemy right yep. here. These two are fucking arch enemy. I'd never noticed that before either. Um, Yes, but it's like you were saying, doing these movies and paying more attention to them. This has always been one of my favorite movies, if not my favorite movie. And I never noticed the connection in the beginning with him knowing that they're. I I never realized they had fought once before. Like they they throw subtle things in there that tells you that this isn't the first time. And then going back and realizing things like this is, it's really cool and was his father Marin walks in there like a fucking G like he's been waiting on this shit. He knows what's going on. Like, uh, Damien tries to tell him like, well, let me give you some background. So there's like three. It. He's like, Nope, there's fucking one demon in there. And that's all you need to know. Cause he knows it's Pazuzu. Yeah. He's yeah. probably like, bro, there's background that you don't even know. 
<laughs> yeah, so here we go. So he and Karis both go in the room, and right off the bat, he tells Reagan to shut the fuck up. He doesn't say shut the fuck up. He says it in some kind of religious way, but yep, that's what he means. It's like the Lord said, shut the fuck up. Yep, Jesus says, shut your fucking mouth. They start their prayer, and Reagan isn't liking it at all. It's super cold in there, and Reagan is thrashing around. She then starts talking shit to Karis, telling him his mother is sucking cocks in hell. The bed starts shaking all over the place as Reagan tugs and pulls, trying to break free of her restraints. Karis is looking straight up scared when that bed starts moving. Yeah, like he the gets the look on his face. So he he gets temporarily uh, distract. Like he gets he gets fucked up for a minute. He gets mind fucked for a minute. Like he, he gets mind fucked a couple times here. He but does this is the first. They one. actually both do. Um, but yeah, this is he's totally uh, he's just zoned out for a second, and uh, that you know he kind of has to snap back into it. One, telling somebody that their dead mother's sucking cocks in hell. I will say this. Demons are the best shit talkers. Oh, absolutely. They are 100%. They're like New Yorkers. Like, if I had to go to a shit talking class, I'm calling Pazuzu. Like, I mean, that, there's not a much worse thing you could say to somebody than your dead mother sucking dicks in hell. Yeah. Father Marin stands up. He's reading his passages. He's got his hand movements going. He's like the Muhammad Ali of this battle right now. He hits her with the holy water, and the bed just like lifts off the ground. It rises to chest level, and it's just levitating there. And Karis is like fucked up in this moment. Reagan sits up, looks at Karis while flicking her tongue wildly, wildly at him like a, like a, a goddamn snake. And the bed drops back down, and Reagan collapses. They finish their prayer place their hands on Reagan's forehead while starting another prayer. Green, oozing vomit starts pouring out of Reagan's mouth. Then large gusts of wind come into the room, and the windows and doors start slamming. The demon starts laughing, and Father Marin starts casting him out of Reagan's body. And this is where we get the famous, The Power of Christ Compels You line. When he's doing this, the room it starts to shake and the walls start to crack. Father Marin kneels down, starts praying, and then we see Reagan sit up and her fucking head slowly twists 360 degrees around with the most creepy grin on her face. That's got to be one of the most famous things in like cinema history. The fucking detail on that too, um, like they even make it like for one, because you know that was a cast of the head. Mm-hmm. I actually have the they bust. Have the whole body of. I have a a bust made from that original cast, but the 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 FX team to go in there and make that so spot on and look so real, and then to show the detail of the breath, like she's breathe, like she's literally breathing out the cold air, like as she's spinning around. The detail in that is is fucking incredible. That scene is the third scene that obviously sticks out in everybody's head when they think about this movie. Um, Good shit. Yeah. So then a goddamn earthquake happens in the room. Both priests fall to the floor. 
Reagan starts yelling at Karis, telling him how he killed his mother by leaving her alone to die and that she doesn't forgive him. And this is fucking Karis up. And it's throwing him off his game big time. The room, it just continues to shake. The sheets then rip off of Reagan and her restraints rip apart. Her eyes turn solid white, her face goes blank, and she begins to slowly rise off the bed, holding her body in the shape of a crucifix. A possessed Reagan now floats above the heads of the priest in the shape of a cross as they attempt to again to cast the demon out of her body. After a minute or so of this, Reagan slowly descends back down to the bed. Once she is fully back down, Karis rushes to tie her hands and feet together. While securing her legs, she hits him in the back, knocking him to the floor. Father Marin hits her with a prayer to subdue her, and then the room violently shakes again, knocking both priests to the floor. As they look up, they see a silhouette of Reagan reaching to the sky with the Pazuzu demon statue from the beginning in front of her. Bro, they have fucking destroyed the foundation of this home. I think it's just the room shaking. I don't know if the rest of the house Yeah, but the the whole ceiling starts cracking in, like the walls are cracking and shit. You can't have... I'll say this, maybe not the foundation, but the upstairs needs... It would not pass inspection after this. Bro, this is a fucking pay-per-view fight. (laughs) Yeah, this is the old uh, Mankind and Undertaker. Yeah, this is that. This is exactly that. Like, you know, Father Marin is like slamming Pazuzu on a thing of tax and shit. Like, they're both fucking falling down and landing on the fucking announcer's table. Like, this is that. Father Marin says a short prayer while things calm down and then they stop for a break. Father Marin's fucked up, man. You yeah, that last this fall. Is, this is this is fuck like not just not just uh physically but mentally too. You can see it in his face. Like, well, so when, he, when he's casting when he's trying to cast her out for the last time when they get up from the second fall when the room shakes um you know, the demon's laughing and you can see he's having a hard time. And what I think is happening here is Pazuzu is manipulating his like body. Like he is trying to like kill him physically. And you see Marin start to like, he's starting to cough and Karis is like, Oh fuck. Like, is this dude about to die? Mm -hmm. And then Karis like, just like gets this burst of energy and he starts casting, casting the demon out again. And that's when, you know, you get another huge shake, and then they both fall. That's where you know where we're at now. But yeah, uh, Pazuzu is one hundred percent trying to kill Father Marin. Here. Yeah, not only is he he uh, you know manipulating his body, but I think at, at that coughing scene was to show like it, he's making him physically sick. Like he and they said the first time that they fought, it almost killed him. Like I think it's at this point where. Because Marin walks in, he's a fucking G this whole time, and then this is the part where you realize he's he's having a, he he's starting to have an issue. Now, so as Father Marin goes into the bathroom to take his medication, uh, you know, Damien heads back into the room alone, and when he goes in there, he sees this image of his mother sitting on Reagan's bed. 
and she's uh, speaking to him in his mother's voice. Karis immediately rejects this as his mother and attempts to check Reagan's medical status. Marin comes in and asks kind of Karis, like, you know, what's wrong with, with Reagan? And he tells him that Reagan's heart is weak. And this is where we see Karis kind of finally have this, like, emotional, mental breakdown. And Marin ain't got time for that shit. He kind of sees, you know, witnessing this weakness. And, you know, it's very obvious that you cannot have weakness around around something like this. Like, it uses this for, for ammunition. Yeah, he, he asked, uh, he's like, is there any medication you can give her? And he's like, no, she'll go into a coma. And he's like, all right, then fuck it. We're going to keep on going. Yeah, he basically tells him in a nice way, get the fuck out. Yep. I'm gonna I'm gonna take care of it myself. Like, you know, Marin at this point is I think he knows that this is gonna probably take him out, but he's he's gonna try to take he's gonna try to save the kid and take the demon with him if that if that's what it is. I think yeah, I think ever since he in the very beginning of the movie in Iraq, he knew that there was a good chance that you know, he's he's 10, 12 years older now. There's a good chance this is going to kill him this time, but he's going to fucking see it through. Yeah, so Marin kneels down. You know, he, he pulls out his pouch. He gets his holy water out. He's got his crucifix. He kneels down on the side of the bed, and he begins to start saying his prayer. Uh, Damien heads downstairs pretty much in defeat, and Chris comes up to him, and she asks if it's over, and he says no. And she asks, uh, pretty much, is Reagan going to die? Karis kind of thinks about it for a minute, and he says no. And he now has this kind of renewed sense of fight in him. He does not want to allow the evil to kill this little girl. And as he walks up to the room, and he opens the door to find Father Marin dead on the bed, and Reagan's kind of sitting in front of him, and she's unrestrained. I think I love this scene because it kind of shows... So- Father Marin's dead, but Reagan is like laid up, slouched against the the back of the bed. It it almost looks like two fighters who yes. beat each other to death. Like Reagan is Pazuzu is clearly is worn out, worn out and fucked up mm-hmm. at this point too. Like they've just had a fight to the death, and it almost killed them both. And they're they're now, you know, this is the aftermath of it. This- Man, I love this fucking movie. This movie is like Godzilla versus Kong. <laughs> it's it's great. It's so good. It's Freddy versus Jason. Yeah, pretty much, man. Like holy fucking shit. Um so yeah, you know, he finds him dead on the bed and, you know, she's sitting there, she's not tied up anymore. She, you know, she obviously got free. We don't really know what happened. But uh, just just as this is going on, uh, Detective Kinderman, he rings Chris's doorbell. And uh, Karis attempts kind of like a CPR, trying to restart Marin's heart, but it's very obvious it's, you know, he's, it's too late. He's uh, very much dead. Um, Reagan starts kind of giggling, and a mad with rage Karis attacks her. And he grabs her, he throws her off the bed, and you know, like onto the floor. He starts throwing punches to her face. Like he's like, no more praying. I'm gonna be I'm just gonna beat your fucking ass, like physically. And he starts like strangling her, and he's telling the demon, he's like, take me, take me. And you see Damien's eyes, they like turn green, and his skin tone lightens up. 
And this is pretty much showing us that he is now possessed by the demon and he falls backwards. As soon as he falls backwards, he immediately jumps up and he kind of leaps forward and he kind of goes to attack Reagan and he kind of takes his body back over and he throws himself out of the window and down the concrete set of stairs below. Chris and Kenderman, they hear the glass break. They rush up the stairs to find a very scared Reagan curled up on the floor. Kenderman looks out of Reagan's window to see Karen's very badly bleeding body at the bottom of the steps. Father Dyer, who is in the area, rushes to Karis's dying body. He attempts to comfort his friend in his last moments by taking a confession and reading him his last rites. That that's a that's a good that's a good friend, man. Cause he knew he he knew in their religion that suicide is a huge sin. So he rushes to I think mm-hmm. this is why he rushes to him. And gets confession out of him right before he dies because he wants him to be forgiven for what he did. Um, so so he's not punished for that. Well, this is like a, another thing, like another reason why I love The Exorcist 3 so much because this scene becomes even more important. And you th- when you see The Exorcist, you you know, this scene looks like this, but then when you see the exorcist three and you see, you see this scene from a different angle, it's really, really interesting. It's, it's, it's actually very sad. It's even more sad than what we are seeing right now. Yeah. We'll have to cover that one. Yeah. That is, you know, fuck this exorcist two. the, what is it? The heretic. Don't watch that. That thing sucks. But the guy who wrote this, you know, uh, William Blatty, he wrote um, The Exorcist 3. I think he might have directed it, too. I think he was like, you know what? I'm going to do this one. And it is has almost it has a, a lot of the same characters. It's in the same place. It has it. It literally tracks back to this story. It is like a really good sequel. Um, and it connects to all of this stuff. It's great. It's great. Watch it. I don't want to spoil anything. Jeffrey Dahmer people. loves it too. Yeah, so. apparently he's he definitely. Yeah, I forgot it. about that. Yeah, that was his. That was his shit. Yeah, but uh, yeah, The Exorcist Two is what happens whenever a studio makes a shit ton of money. Yeah, they go ahead and greenlight something without a script, trying to capitalize on the money. Just like I talked about a couple episodes ago, what I'm worried they're doing with Scream right now, greenlighting it's a movie with no, with no script. And that is the pile of shit outcome that you get when that happens. So is the cop like your daughter is a serial killer? Like, you know, if I'm the cop, I'm like, there's no way two grown ass men jumped out of the same window and committed suicide within like a month apart. With your daughter in the room both times. Oh, and by the way. Why is there a dead priest in the corner over here? Yeah, so that is something I thought about at the end, especially as in- inquisitive as he is, and uh, he thinks something's going on already. But I think when this happens, and he sees that it was Reagan in there the whole time, he knows that a 12-year-old girl would not be capable of murdering three grown men, and he realizes that there's there's other shit going on here, that the the church was probably trying to help with and he just kind of 
turns a blind eye at it. Yeah, what I'm assuming is because the church actually like, um, like actually sanctioned this exorcism and sent Father Marin there, kind of sent Karis there. Uh, I guess the church probably like pulled him to the side and was like, "Yo, this is this is what was going down." You know, you know. Obviously, the little girl didn't kill. Like the way that it looks from your point of view is not even really possible. But if you're religious, which you know most people are, uh, you, you know this makes a lot more sense. And we're we're backing it. We had evidence that was brought to us uh, that was collected over a large amount of time. You know, so that's what I'm assuming happened here. But he seems to be uh, have a decent relationship with Father Dyer too. At the end, yeah, and uh, there's a good chance he kind of clued them in. Maybe not on the specific details, but what what was really going on off the record, and that's why he kind of asked at the end, "Well, is the little girl all right?" At least, and he said, "Yeah, that's all that matters." Yeah, and uh, once again, Exorcist three. So. Um, you know, Detective Kinnerman and Father Dyer are the main characters of The Exorcist Three, and this is a uh, much later. You know, they're much older now, and they have been best friends since this happened. You know, it was really cool that they uh, actually this brought them uh, closer. You know, they became kind of movie buddies, and now they have like lunch every day. And you know, obviously, that tells you. His character is very close with the church, I believe. But uh, sometime later, we see that the McNeils are leaving the Georgetown, Washington area. They're packing the car. We see that Reagan has returned to her normal self, and she's mostly healed up from her injuries. Father Dyer stops by just as they are about to leave. They kind of say their goodbyes. Chris tells him that Reagan doesn't remember any of it. And yeah, Reagan gives him a kiss on the cheek and a hug. You know, they head out. Kinderman shows up right after and Father Dyer tells him that uh, he just missed them. So if you wanted to arrest them, they're they're gone. He asked about Reagan and is pleased that she has recovered. Uh, Kinderman asked if he would like to go see a film and get lunch and he agrees. They walk down the street together and that's the end. One thing that I noted here, so, and I've noticed this in in the past, so Reagan says she doesn't remember any of it, but it's very clear that when she sees Father Dyer, she zeroes in on his priest collar, and that's whenever she lunges to give him a hug and a kiss on the cheek. So I think some part of her remembers the priests that were in there that saved her. Yeah, I think she does remember some of it. You know, she probably doesn't remember all of it, but I definitely think it's not just a what happened kind of thing. Yeah, I think at least when she sees that collar, it it activates some part in her brain where she knows that they were in there trying to save her the whole time. Because she is, although she may not remember it, she is uh, consciously there while this is going on. Um, you can tell in two scenes, uh, the help me scene, whenever her shirt goes up and uh, she shows uh, Father Damien the, the help me through her stomach. And then also right after the spinning head, there's actually a scene where they use some camera tricks to do it. But 
half of the face, and it's really hard. You have to look really close to be to tell it. I actually read about it. Uh, I think last time I watched this movie, and I went in and watched it. Half of her face morphs back into Reagan, and the, huh. and it shows that Reagan is consciously trapped in this demon at this point, and she's like begging for help. And it's it's you have to catch it right after the head spin, but half of her face morphs back into Reagan's regular face, and half of it's still the demon. So she's 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 aware of what's going on. She may not have memory, but because she was aware when she seen that collar, it triggered some part in her brain, and she knew that that's that those were the people there that was saving her life. Yep. Yeah. Uh, well. That's the end of this, and what a fucking fantastic, a fantastic movie. It's, uh, I mean, I have nothing to gripe about or really complain or add to this whole entire story. The fact that this movie is 50 years old, yeah, and it still like holds up so well. Not not just so well, it's, it's like I said, it's, it is... When when people ask me my favorite horror movie, that's such a hard question because it really depends on the mood, what I yeah, feel like I watching. There's so many great horror movies. So my go-to is always The Exorcist because it's no matter what mood I'm in, it's a movie that I can sit down and watch and love every single time. And uh, I think part of that goes back into this was the first horror movie that scared me as a kid. Um, it's the first one that I re- specifically remember laying in bed at night thinking about. And th- because of that, that was kind of my beginning love of horror. And I've grown into this. This movie will always hold a special place in my heart because of it. You know, being told that this was based off a true story. I remember laying in bed and thinking... Oh God! Like, what? What if this happens to me? I remember Mom telling me you have to kind of invite this stuff in, and I remember being five, laying in bed, like, "What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> like, what do you mean I have to invite it in? Do I have to physically say it? Do I? Am I going to accidentally think it? Like, it's just like seriously worried that this was going to happen to me. But uh, you know, back to what we were saying, that fifty years old, this movie is just like I said, it's my go-to when somebody asks me that question. Uh, it holds up, man. And I think, honestly, it'll hold up for another 50 years. Yeah, this... Well, one thing this movie did for me is it was so good that it has ruined every other Possession movie. I don't really like Possession movies. I don't watch them. I will watch them. But, you know, uh, I, you know, largely avoid them. Yeah, I'll check them out if I hear something good about one, but they're kind of like my least kind of favorite subgenre of movies. And the reason why is because none of them compare to this movie. And one of the one of the reasons I think this movie is so good and it does what other possession movies never do is they spend the first half of the movie trying to medically figure out what is going on every other movie the characters immediately go and find a priest and and, i mean that that's like the whole thing is like they immediately bring these priests in 
so many people in this story, including the fucking priest that they brought in originally, were like, yeah, no, 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 no. Like, this doesn't ever happen anymore. Like, this is outdated. I mean, it's it's very realistic. And you would take your kid to the fucking doctor. You would spend tons of money and do every test that they wanted to do to get your kid fixed. And that's how, you know, society normally works. Most people don't jump to that like, oh, well, they're possessed. We got to get somebody to say some prayers over top of them and they'll be fine. And a lot of times, you know, what we know about like uh, psychology now, it, you know, it is a medical thing a mental thing. And this movie tackles so much of that. And the possession stuff is in the back end of the movie. But they spend so much time trying to prove that she's not really possessed. What other possession movie spends the majority of the movie trying to prove it's not real? Well, well Chris isn't even religious either. And her character's not religious. Most possession movies, they're normally religious people to begin with. Yeah, that for, for me, it's... And this is what I'm so worried they're going to do with the, the new Exorcist movie that's coming out and I pray they go back to the roots and they don't do this, but they're all the same. Yeah. And they all have these ridiculous jump thing, jump scares, uh, tons of jump scares. They always add this background like suspense and like loud noises. The, the demonic voices are always very electronic, uh, they use the CGI body morphs. Every one of them has some like uh, possessed girl crawling on the ceiling, like you know, like a fucking hag out of the woods or something. Like they always do these just ridiculous CGI body morphs. Uh, what makes this movie so fucking great is it doesn't need that stuff. Like the shot of her in the dark, and you can see her breath in the dark. And there's no music going on in the background. All you can hear is her grunts and her breathing. And it feels like you're there. Like it feels real. If this was to really happen, you wouldn't have all this ridiculous shit in the background. Like this would be what it was like. And it, it stands alone out of any other possession movie uh, nowadays it would. in that way. Well, the sound people won an award. It was one of the only awards it won was for sound. And, you know, I was reading a little bit about the sound and, um, you know, the sound and the lighting and stuff, you know, like they, they tried to, the way they shot the movie was they did like, especially with the lighting, they did, um, you know, they tried to stick with mostly natural lighting, like the kind of light that would actually be in a room. No. Not a bunch of extra lighting. And they did the same thing with sound. They didn't want to, you know, amp up this or amp up that. They didn't want a bunch of sound where there wouldn't in real life be sound. One thing this movie does that I really like that I think is cool is during some of the dialogue when they're talking, you you actually hear two of the actors kind of talking over each other. Like some of their and and people do that in real life and they're having a conversation. Um, like a really good example is like in the basement slash game room when Reagan and Chris are talking, they're both kind of talking at the same time. 
And you don't see that in films very often because, you know, they they cut everything so nice and neat. Like, all right, this actor says their lines and then this actor says their lines and then go back over here and say your lines. That's not real life. Like people sometimes um, they're saying their sentence and the other person thinks they're done and then they start theirs and it turns out they weren't done. And um, so there's a lot of really realistic interesting sound and lighting stuff that is that is done with this movie that makes it it makes it real it makes it a real movie and then when you add the story that is the most realistic type possession movie because i feel like every other possession movie what they what they do is they take all the scary scenes from the exorcist and they like pick it apart like it's like a like a dead animal on the side of the road and they get all the good meat and then they leave all the story. Like all this other stuff that made the exorcist good, they leave like all this stuff about the story. That's awesome. And the sound that's awesome. And the lighting that's awesome. And the, and the casting good actors that weren't super famous. That was really good idea. And then they like take stuff like the head twisting. And but then they're they lifting s- off the bed and the bed shaking CGI and it looks fucking absolute. Yeah, they take it fake as fuck. They dude. amp it up. They wrap it in plastic. And then they like multiply it by 20 and boom, there's your movie. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you don't need all that shit. Like, give us a good story and exorcism at the end. That's what we need. That's it. It's that simple. Yeah, it's just yeah. It's the the sound, lighting, everything. It's, it's it has so much realism to it. Another thing that they did when they they shot this movie is they tried to make everything unsettling, like in the way they shot it, um, even down to like the angles and things. And they did an amazing job at that. And it feels not just unsettling, but it feels like you're there. It feels real. They don't do too much. Uh, they have they have their spots where the, you know she's going crazy, but they're not. There's there's not like ridiculous CGI and fucking fake sounding electronic effects in the background. Not a bunch of jump scares. Like this movie doesn't need jump scares. Like. Her her in a dark room with the light barely shining through the window on her fucking fucked up face with her breath coming through is a thousand times scarier than a cheap CGI electronic sounding jump scare. Like it just is. And uh, based off the preview I've seen for the new one, I'm pretty, pretty sure I'm I'm worried that they're going to do it more based off of nowadays possession and exorcism movies. And not as much back to the basics. Uh, The makeup looked good. But that's another point I wanted to touch. The fucking makeup in this movie. The way they make Reagan. Is. Probably. If not my favorite. In my top three of any horror movie ever. Like the look. The way they. The way they do her makeup. um, Just everything about it. The colors that they use. Like. It it's just it's just is unsettling as fuck. I love it. That's why I have a uh, eight foot canvas of Reagan lifting off the bed, literally over my couch. Like it's it'll forever be uh, w- one of my favorite. 
the FX team did. They they didn't have a whole lot to shine on in this movie. They didn't have a whole lot of chances, but everything they did, they absolutely nailed. Yeah, the stuff they did is cinema history. It no, is. Nobody will, will... You know, you may come out with other exorcism. Like, you may have eventually have one that's good, but I don't think you'll ever have anything more uh, iconic than that design when it comes yeah. to when it comes to this yeah pos- i don't think you ever will possession movies have made millions of dollars because of this movie there is the exorcist that's about to come out and it's probably gonna make mm-hmm. close to 100 million if not more i can't predict how great it's gonna do but because it's got the name it has it's gonna make mi- tens of millions of dollars at minimum and it's all because of the name of the legacy that this movie left behind. Uh, no matter how good or bad of a movie. It could be the worst movie ever, but people are going to go see it, just like us. We're going to be in the movie theater yeah. watching it, praying to God that they went back to the basics and they, they did justice to this movie um, because of how good it was. It, it literally it cha- changed things forever. All right, so we're going to talk a little bit about some uh, some interesting things I found out about the movie. The actress Mercedes McCambridge, who did the voice of the demon for Reagan, insisted on eating raw eggs and chain smoking to alter her voice. She also gave up her sobriety and drank alcohol because of the effects drinking had on her voice. She deserves an award, too. It it gets crazier. That's just the tip of the iceberg. So her alcohol of choice was whiskey. And uh, because she had issues with alcohol in the past, she uh, demanded to have her priest on set to counsel her during the recording process. The director is known to be very demanding and dramatic on set. And he had McCambridge bound to a chair with pieces of torn sheets at her neck, arms, wrist, legs, and feet to get a more realistic sound of a demon struggling with restraints. McCambridge later recalled the whole experience as one horrific rage. That's great. Whoa. Uh, yeah, I... Hey, starting hey, off hot. Had they not had they not done that, we might not have got what we got. I, now I will stay with the drinking. That <laughs> that, that may have been nuts. just an excuse to start drinking That's, again. Uh, yeah. Everything else I could see, she may have just been like, mm, "This is a pretty good reason to start drinking again." But mm. the chain smoking and the gargling glass shards and everything else she did for the part. She she deserves an award, too. So the green vomit is thick pea soup, specifically a brand name named Anderson's. Apparently, they did try Campbell's, but it didn't have the desired effect. I did read a couple of spots that it was uh, too watery. Bro, that soup is some green. Like, it is it green, is. green. I don't know who I thought they made, like, made eat it. that. Like, there ain't no way. Mm. I love that color. I love the color vomit. Like, I, I love it with, with the, it's just, it's the exorcist green. It's the uh, green we get on the shirt. It goes with the eyes, It's too. the green, yeah, that we get on the eye. There's a scene whenever they're doing the, the final exorcism, 
And uh, Father Marin puts his hand on the side of her head while he's praying. And she looks over in the direction of the camera. And the fucking yellowish green eyes. Why it's it's the scene where she's throwing up the vomit. It's, it's just, just, it's just out. flowing out of her mouth. Mm-hmm. Cinematography wise, it's one of my favorite fucking scenes. Like I just I want a still shot of that hanging on my wall. That green is just it's a great green. But I would never fucking eat a soup that <laughs> color. Like if you busted open a can of something, and it was apocalypse levels, and I was hungry, I'm gonna be hungry. This was uh, Jason Miller's first film. He was like a stage kind of Broadway type actor before this movie. Who did he play? Which one was Jason? You know, I oh Father Cares. I'm terrible. With. Father Cares. Okay, yeah. yeah. He he like he was made. He was made for mm-hmm. that role. Couldn't imagine anybody else, especially after seeing the third one too. As good as he did in that, there's there's nobody else I could imagine playing that role. Yeah, so uh, we talked a little bit about this earlier, but Father Dyer is played by William O'Malley, an actual priest. He was a teacher for the priesthood till 2012, and he used to refer to this movie as the pornographic horror film he once did when telling his students about it. See, I left you some fact in there. You left me a little bit. You didn't completely (laughs) take all the meat off the bone. I didn't know all that. Uh, On the uh, actual house, there is a yard separating the home from the concrete set of steps that, uh, that, you know, Karis falls down. It's about a 40-foot distance from Reagan's window to the stairs. So the set department had to actually build a false part of the house to make it look like those two were right next to each other. They say that um, because of the distance, it would actually be Totally impossible to throw someone or for someone to even jump that far from that window to that set of steps the way it actually is set up. So whenever he falls out the window, that was out of a fake window, right? That's the set that they built. Yeah, they built an extension onto the actual. I heard you mention that they padded it in two inches of rubber. Yeah. That does not sound good. <laughs> I feel like you could still die oh, from well, falling down that. Well, he, I, he <laughs> didn't fall like out of the window onto the steps. You know, they did like a jump out of the window scene. Yeah, and then somebody and rolling. like a pad right there. And then, you know, obviously cut. And then they did a stunt man who did the just jump from the top of the matter. Of, did we? Yeah, yeah but seen... that's a lot of steps, man. Falling down. I don't know. That's not very much padding. I feel like rubber's not even padding. You know, stuntmen are fucking wild, man. They set themselves on fire. Yeah. Well, sometimes that goes wrong. It does. And sometimes falling down 50 fucking steps padded with rubber. That's probably not much better. Do we get a scene where someone falls down all the steps? I feel like we only see like them fall down some of the steps. so I, th- I thought that we actually seen them out the window and hit the steps and then no. roll down. But uh, we at least see from where the window is, they roll. It, it shows him at the end roll down to the bottom of the steps. Hmm. So the scene where Reagan first turns her head around backwards and says, do you know what she? Yeah, we talked about this one. Um, yeah. So this is the demon pretending to be Burke Dennings. And this is why it's his voice. And, uh, you know, the turning head. Uh, represents Burke's head after the fall. Forgot we went over that one. Um, so this is the last one. The actor who played Burke Dennings, whose name is uh, Jack McGrowan, tragically passed away right after filming. 
he had flown to New York right after he did The Exorcist. He flew to New York to work on a new project and sadly passed away from complications from the flu. He was only 54 years old. Yeah, that's one of the ones that goes into the cursed, the cursed, yeah. the cursed film. And there, so there's an episode of Cursed Films um, on Shudder. That's really good. And there's a lot of things we don't have time to cover, but they cover it really good there. It's uh, done really well. Hmm. The kill count in this movie is four. You got Burt Dennings, Father Damien Karras, Father Marin. And uh, Karis's mother, who I'm not going to try to pronounce her name because it's definitely not some shit I can pronounce. She's from, uh, obviously, uh, maybe Italy. I don't know. Yeah. I cannot pronounce I'm that. Pretty no, sure that <laughs> Italian, I believe. Yeah. Um, um, her, her, but yeah, I guess her kill counts is in the movie. They talk about yeah, it. Uh, it counts. Yeah, unfortunately, she, we don't know. Her body was found for days. may have killed her. We don't know. That's. That's a good point. Yep. I've never thought about that. To use because, to use that because against Father cares. When she's in the psych ward, she's not in her right mind, and it's already kind of insinuating that some like something's going on with her because she mm-hmm. was completely normal, and then all of a sudden, not only is she completely out of her mind, but she's blaming her son. Like he's trying to tell her like i'm gonna get you out of here like i'm not gonna leave you in here she's totally like this is your fault i can't believe you did this to me how could you put me in here like i'm gonna die in here and so i i do think the movie meant for that to be pazuzu's influence over her never thought about her being killed by pazuzu yeah originally wasn't gonna put it in because it was kind of seemed originally like a side thing that happens but then i thought about it and i said well you know, what if, what if he did that so he could, you know, he knew that would take Father Karras out and that would leave him just, just Marin. You know, like that's, that, you know, that's a very good possibility, I think. But and he already knew that he was, you know, struggling with his priesthood and, mm-hmm. and leaving the church. And if there's something that's going to break somebody, it's fun now. Not only did your your mother die, but she fucking sat in there for days decomposing. It could have been because he goes there every few days. It could have been like, I'll wait for her to visit. I wait for him to visit. And then as soon as he leaves, I'll make her health worse. She'll die. And then he won't come back for days. And when he finally does come back, he'll have to find her. Like, that'll fuck him up even more. Yeah, you know, we don't know. But it's. A, I think it's a good... I think it's a really good um, idea. I think this also kind of pulls him and with, with this happening to him and he's struggling with this priesthood and he starts drinking. I think when she comes to him, when Chris comes to him for help, he's a lot more inclined to help because she's like, my, I'm going to lose my daughter. And he feels bad and that's when he agrees to go see Reagan. That's ultimately what leads to the church approving the exorcism and him getting his arch enemy back in there, which was the whole goal from the beginning. Yeah. Because he knew, like I said, that they were, you know, from the beginning of the movie, they were going to they were going to throw down again. Maybe that was part of Pazuzu's plan to get him back there. He had to get a priest in there. And had to get them a proven exorcism to get get uh what's his name? Father uh Marin. Father Marin back, yeah. 
All right, so ratings. I'm going to go ahead and just say it, man. I'm rating this fucking movie five stars. The plot's a five. The pacing's a five. The character's a five. The special effects a five. Every fucking thing about this movie is a five-star movie. It's one of the best movies that's ever been made, period. I mean, you know, and I could sit and tell you why I think it's a five-star movie, but I think we just spent probably like two and a half hours doing that. So, (laughs) you know, it's a five-star movie. You looked at my ratings. Yeah. You looked at my ratings. I totally copied you. Yeah, I, it's, you I, know, I start my rating off with, I'm probably a little biased. I, you <laughs> so know, you know it's so. going to be a five-star five right then. I don't like possession movies, and this is a five-star movie. Yeah. And this is, you know, depending on the day, some days this is my favorite movie. You know, it just depends on the mood I'm in, because sometimes I, you know, Slasher is my favorite, and sometimes this is my favorite. You know, I don't necessarily have a single set favorite movie kind of have like a set of favorite movies that you know I go to when I want to watch one of my favorite movies what do I which one of my favorites do I feel like watching I don't have just one movie I think's better than everything but this is one of them this is absolutely one of them this is you know they'll never they'll never make anything better than this they'll never they never will yeah so I guess uh, go ahead my my rating is is also five um, surprisingly, I wrote a whole thing on why it's a five, and okay. I'm not going to go through it because I've already touched on it. Okay, well, there you go. During this episode. Yep. Uh, but specifically, you know, and I think every horror fan has this, but they remember the first movies that they really remember scaring them. The first couple that they seen when they were, they were a kid, no matter how old that was. And I have a handful of those, which was the original Poltergeist, The Exorcist, uh, the original Evil Dead. Uh, those movies are the three that stick out to me as a kid. And this one more than any of them, because this was the first movie that kept me up late at night. And for that, this will always be a five star. Always. Yeah, uh, I forgot to mention, I read it like right before we started doing this. They were going to remake this movie in like 2015. Completely remake it. Yeah, you you can't do that. Don't like, fucking touch this movie. Like, they, you know, if you want to make sequels or add-ons or whatever, you know, like, I guess. But you can't remake this movie. You can't. You know, it, it, if you do, you are going to, you might as well just set a pile of money on fire. Because no one's gonna go watch it over this, no. Yeah, this is this is uh, yeah, this is just untouchable. I'm trying to think of a song that just can't be touched. It's like we're gonna rewrite the national anthem. Yeah. We're just gonna come up with a whole new, we're gonna base it off the same words. It's be a whole different song, or we're gonna we're gonna rewrite the Bible. You know how you know that this is Which such a, done. a good movie and an important movie is when you have like people that don't even like horror that watch this movie. You know, like I had a conversation with somebody last year that doesn't really like horror movies, but they knew what the fucking Exorcist was. It was one of the only horror movies they'd ever seen. Yeah, there you go. Or or people who are horror fans, and there's always this group of horror fans that love horror but don't care for things past a certain age, which is my wife. <laughs> um, you know, anything too old is she can't get into. And she loves this fucking movie. And it's older than 
all the other old ones that she won't get into. So it's from the seventies. Yeah, it's it's this thing. Everything about this movie, should, the the way it was shot, the acting, the story, the fucking soundtrack, that that amazing The Exorcist that theme, The mm-hmm. Exorcist theme, which I feel like had a lot of impression on like a lot of the horror movie themes that followed. Like if you listen to like Halloween's theme, how it's played, uh, and a shit ton of other movies of uh, around ten years after that. I think it had a lot of impression. Everything about this movie is great. Everything. Yeah, but, uh, you know, who, huge thanks for you guys for joining us on this one. Uh, you know, I worked uh, my ass off to do this movie justice. It's really difficult to cram 50 years of a legacy into like a two-hour episode. I don't think I did it justice. This could be a 10-part a series. There was so much that uh, I had to dig through that, and I could really only pick like 10% of it. But, you know, we, we wanted to do as much as we could for this movie. But if you're still hungry for more info on The Exorcist, which I totally understand, I encourage you to go check out more stuff. There is so, so much more we didn't get to talk about here. The Wikipedia page is huge. The IMDb trivia page is a fucking book basically there is uh, a really good episode of a show called cursed films on shutter slash amc plus on the whole cursed production stuff it's season one episode one um because we didn't really touch on the too much of the cursed stuff but that that's like a whole episode in itself uh life magazine just put out a special edition dedicated to the film it's about a hundred pages it's fantastic. I used it to help write this episode. Uh, but that's it for us. If you like the show, please give us a follow and a spectacular review. Check out our social media pages for updates on what we got going on. And we'd also like to chat about some horror shit over there. Uh, you got any last words? Um, stay away from that pea soup and uh, don't pop Viagra with Pazuzu. You will regret it. Hmm. The power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels you. It's not that compelling. <laughs> <laughs>